0: So, last week, or I guess it was two weeks ago, we began this series on the parables of Jesus Christ. And, you know, most of us have grown up thinking that the parables are, are metaphorical stories or they're analogies or they have kind of like earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And, and while there's some truth in all that, really the, the, the parables are more about life. They were not told as, as something to think about when you think about heaven. Jesus spoke in them to teach people about life. They were complicated and simple. They were messy. They were, they were challenging. They were convicting. They're, they're really put there, spoken into lives of people to cause them to rethink their own life and propel them how to live. And the past two weeks, we've been exploring these parables. I'm actually going to teach from the same parable I taught from last week uh, when I had to preach up the hill. And if if any of you folks were there, apologies. But guess what? If you hear the same thing twice, it's not going to kill you. God is just that big. So uh, maybe he'll show you in a little different light or a little different way this morning and reveal himself um, in that way. But we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 18. You know, the scripture is mysterious. It is. It's this sort of wonderful mystery, this beautiful simplicity to it that speaks to our heart. And we pray every week in here, as as before we open God's word, we pray every week, and I say this, I say something along the lines of that we know that an encounter with God's word is an encounter with God. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Because we truly believe, we truly believe that in this Bible, in this book, holds the words to very life, and they are God's words spoken to you and I, and that an encounter with them, an encounter with his word, is an actual encounter with God. This isn't things that are written to just sort of shape our thinking, but this is God's very truth spoken to our lives. So we take it very seriously. When Jesus spoke to people, when he taught in parables, he was speaking into their lives. He was speaking about specific situations, challenging them to think and propelling them to action. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the book of Luke chapter 18 this morning is Jesus speaking a very complicated, very convicting and very messy story into the lives of people that probably didn't want to hear it. And uh, so whatever baggage or issues or things you brought at church this morning or whatever kind of things you're wrestling with, oftentimes God speaks into the very areas of our life that we don't want to hear. So we've got to prepare our minds and our hearts to be open before the Lord. So book of Luke chapter 18, and before we read this together, let's spend some time and just ask God to prepare our hearts. Lord, we are grateful for your word that is true God, we're grateful that it is living and active, as you say, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even to dividing joints and marrow, that it's soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, we pray that you would speak to us. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask that for the next moments, God may speak directly to you. Just say, God, speak to me through your word. And pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name, even if you don't like to pray, just kind of whisper something for them. Just say, God, do something in this person's life. God, we pray that you would meet us right where we are this morning. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. So God, prepare us and reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. You know, oftentimes when Jesus taught in these parables, he taught in um, kind of multiple parables. He would teach a story after a story after story, and, and people would gather around and they would listen. And Jesus often spoke to things that were very timely and very real. So when we see this parable in, in the book of Luke chapter 18, We're going to see Jesus speaking into a circumstance and situation that probably involved these people that were sitting there. He's going to talk about a tax collector and a Pharisee, and in that crowd, sitting before Jesus, were probably multiple tax collectors and multiple Pharisees. Jesus spoke directly to people. He spoke directly to situations. So we're going to be in verse 9 this morning of chapter 18, and we're going to go down through 14, and look at this short parable and these words of Jesus as we try and find ourselves in here as we try and discover our own life in parable. This is what Jesus says, Luke 18, chapter 9, or chapter 18, verse 9. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, We get this parable that Jesus is teaching, and, and there are these people in this story, a tax collector and a Pharisee, and we know actually a lot about these kind of characters because we see them all over the New Testament. Most of us are familiar with the Pharisees. They're the religious leaders. They had made a life out of keeping the law. In fact, they had made such a life out of keeping the law that they even separated themselves from the world and from other people. They dressed differently. They lived differently. They hung around with different people. They didn't associate with the world because they wanted to be so separate. They wanted to live so religious and so pious and obey the law in such a way that they removed themselves from the moral riffraff. And we have one of these Pharisees, these teachers, these keepers of the law. And Jesus' crowds that he taught to were probably filled with these people. In fact, the scripture kind of sets up to those who kind of thought about themselves a little higher than others, this is what Jesus said. So Jesus is probably teaching to a crowd that contains quite a few of these folks. The other person in our little parable is a tax collector. And we know a lot about that from things like the story of Zacchaeus. I mean, tax collectors were, they were a mess. They were sinful. And they were sinful because they were thieves. I mean, they were people that basically stole You know, they would tell you you owed more than you had, or they would, you know, keep the allotted amount for the Roman government, and then they would just take the rest. I mean, they were thieves and robbers, and everybody hated them, not just because they collected taxes, but because the way they went about doing it and how much they took. And there's a whole series of things here that took place with tax collectors, but we know that people hated them, and we know that from the story of Zacchaeus. Remember, no one liked that short little guy. I mean, everybody hated him. And we know that tax collectors on a lot of levels are sort of the opposite in so many ways of what what Pharisee would be. Pharisee, religious leader, keeper of the law, living that way, keeping it at all costs. Uh, Tax collector, sinful thief, robber, kind of keeping it that way at all costs because it was a very good way to make a living. So you have these two people that live on opposite ends of the moral spectrum. And Jesus kind of pairs them together in his parable. And he says, both of these men go to the temple to pray. So both the men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, go to the temple to carry out their religious duty. Because, you know, this would have been a very common practice. Because in that that period, in that Jewish customs, there were four times the day that were really devoted to prayer. There was the 9 hour, the 9 o'clock hour, the midday or the noon hour, the 3 and the 6. And those four times were when good, God-fearing Jews prayed. And if you could, you went to the temple. But if you couldn't, if you were in the field or whatever, you prayed where you were. It was Jewish custom. So here we have the tax collector, the sinner, and the religious leader, the Pharisee, going to do the exact same religious activity, keeping up their sort of moral obligation to the religious system. We're going and we're praying, which wouldn't have been uncommon at all. You would have seen both of these type of men filling those religious obligations or those religious duties. So Jesus goes on this parable and he says, both of these men go and pray. And the Pharisee stands and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here who's standing right beside me. I thank you that I'm not like that. I fast and I give and I just thank you. And Jesus says the tax collector prays about himself. And really, he just sort of prays that he's you know, thankful that he's not like that, you know, and got to thank you that I'm not like this person. Tax collector does something really different. He, he stands at a distance. It says that he doesn't even look up to heaven. He beats his breast and he just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus kind of sums up this little parable by saying, this man, the tax collector, goes home justified because he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted, sort of end of story. Now, when we get to the end of the parables of Jesus, when he teaches a parable, we really have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying? I mean, what is he really teaching? Now, is this a parable about prayer? I mean, both men go to the temple to pray. I mean, is it a parable about prayer, like our attitude, you know, how we see ourselves or how we see other people that we should, you know, keep a certain attitude when we pray? I mean, maybe it could possibly be that. But what I really see in this parable is, at its very core, is about humility, but not in the way that you and I typically think about humility because how you and I usually think about humility is we think about making ourselves lowly or feeble or not taking recognition for something we do or when someone gives us really great praise we sort of deflect it like when people go, man you are awesome and I go, no I'm not, that's God you know, that's what my picture of being humble is or when I go to give money I I do it secretly instead of one of those giant cardboard checks or like here's my thirty dollars You know, we think that's being humble. I'm going to make sure no one knows that I gave. And that's what humility is. Or if I can just make myself lowly and feeble. And, you know, there are aspects of humility wrapped up in those things, of course. I mean, it's about not doing things for recognition. You know, I mean, we get that. But really, biblical humility doesn't begin there. Biblical humility, now hear me say this. Biblical humility is not about making yourself lowly or feeble. Biblical humility is really about recognizing who you are in comparison to who god is so biblical humility is about knowing who you are in comparison to who god is now we see this happening all through scripture god is magnificent and mighty and wondrous and holy and and all of these amazing things and all of his grandeur and might and strength and power and man is the opposite of all that And humility begins when we recognize who God is and who I truly am. That I am nothing in his presence. That in in God's very presence, I'm a mess. Humility begins in that recognition. So if you peel away all the sort of outer layers of humility, what you're left with is the word understanding. And it's an understanding of who I really am compared to who God is. And every time in scripture we see someone come face to face with God, Amazing things happen, and they usually end up on their face, or they usually end up in worship, or they usually end up broken. Because God is amazing and wonderful and huge and holy and powerful, and humanity, humans, are just not. And biblical humility begins with that understanding. And at the core of this parable, I really believe, is the idea of understanding. It's a recognition of understanding, and really in two ways. The way these men understood who they were, and the way these men understood what they needed. And that's what I really believe this parable shakes down to be about. Humility, understanding who I am and what I need. And we really see this played out in several ways. So when we look at the first one, the, the understanding of these men in terms of who they were, we can really see it played out in how they pray. I mean, when the, ta- or when the Pharisee goes to pray, we see his posture. He stands and he prays. Now, That wouldn't have been uncommon at all because a Jewish prayer posture was one of standing. It was reverence. They stood out of reverence, out of respect for who God is. So it wouldn't have been all that uncommon. We see the Pharisee, the Jewish leader, doing what he should do. He stood and he prayed. Quite a different picture with the tax collector, though, isn't it? I mean, it says that he stands at a distance. The tax collector stood at a distance, and he didn't even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast. We get the picture the tax collector stayed back, and he wouldn't even look up with his eyes, almost as if there was some kind of recognition that in the presence, when I go to pray, in the presence of this, this God, this mighty, holy, magnificent, amazing God, who am I to even approach? I can't even come close because I know who I really am. And I'm not even going to look towards heaven as if I could see God anyway, but just the mere act seemed to be irreverent. Now remember, the tax collector is sort of the the anti-Pharisee, but there was a recognition of these two men. Do you see what's going on? The Pharisee, while doing nothing wrong, didn't have the same understanding of who he really was. You know, that, the, that, that prayer that the, the text collector prays, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, that Greek sentence structure, really, the definite article, the, comes before the word sinner. So really what that sentence translates as is, God have mercy on me, or be merciful to me, the sinner. It was almost as if the text collector got this idea that not only was he a sinner, but he was probably the sinner. I mean, we see Paul using this kind of language all the time. He goes, I am, Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. I mean, this is Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, calling himself the chief of sinners. There's an understanding, both with the tax collector and even with Paul, that compared to who God was, they were sinful people. See, humility begins with an understanding of who we truly are. Like it or not, every single one of us is a sinful person in need of the mercy of of God. See, the tax collector recognized who he really was, and the Pharisee missed it. He just stood and he prayed, did nothing wrong, but somewhere deep inside of him, it's almost as if he didn't know who he was, that he thought he was a Pharisee religious leader, and he missed the fact that who he truly was, was a sinful person in the presence of holy God. Now, notice in the parable, Jesus isn't telling the Pharisee he did anything wrong, But neither, both of these men had different, very different understandings of who they were. And you and I really need to come to this place. We need to come to a place where we recognize that we're not all that we think we are and that we are sinful people. Every one of us, whether you like to think that the person next to you is more sinful than you or not, doesn't matter. The fact is that you are a sinful person. We've looked at this a thousand different ways in here over the past year. We are sinful people who need rescuing from the pit. We are sinful. We just have to get over it and realize that's who we are, that we need God. But the church, I mean, we are filled with people who, much like the Pharisee, are just glad that we're not like this person. And we're more astonished at this person who, we know what they've done in their moral life. We know what they've done in their marriage or in their work life or with their children or whatever. We can't even really believe they're at church. And here they are singing as if they had the right to do that after we know what they do at work. That's the Pharisee. God, thank you that I am not like this man. This man right here. And as a church, we really think about lives that way. Instead of being so grateful the tax collector even showed up in the first place, we're more concerned with the fact that the tax collector is here. So we race out into the end of our little worship service out here and we say, hey, can you believe who came after all that? We're all sinful. We just need to get past it and realize that just because you may not have done what you think this person's done does not make you any less sinful period every single one of us is full of sin and if you're not or if you think you're not first john says you're a liar so we've all got it so the first really picture is that these two men had very different understandings of who they were but at the core of their hearts they were both sinful people different categories of sin but both sinful the second thing that we really see is the difference is in their need and what they thought they needed. So the Pharisee stands up before God and he says, God, look at what I've done. I have given a tenth of all I've got and I have fasted twice this week already. I mean, I am keeping your moral law to a perfect tee. And you know what? He was. No one would argue that from a religious perspective. Kind of practice standpoint, the Pharisee had done nothing wrong. He had showed up at the temple when he was supposed to, he prayed when he was supposed to, he gave when he was supposed to, he fasted when he was supposed to, he did it right, according to the picture. So he was explaining to God that he didn't really need God. Look what I've done. And I think a lot of us in our own lives we try and do that to God. We justify some of the stuff that are happening in our lives by saying, God, look what I've done. I mean, it's been It's been a year since I've done this, Or God, I've already been to church twice this week, or I've already gone three times this, whatever, and so we just say, God, look at what I've done. It's almost as if the Pharisee doesn't really think that he has a need. I mean, I'm supposed to go pray. It's noon, or it's nine, or it's three, or six, or whatever time it was, and so I'm just going to go and pray, but I don't really know what I should pray about because I really have kind of got it down. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. Jesus actually doesn't call any of that into question. We get an incredibly different picture with the tax collector. So what does a tax collector do? He shows up, he stands at a distance, and it says that he beats his breast. That sort of passion that you see, that that sort of realistic kind of, God, I am in desperate need of you. And his prayer says this, only thing that comes out of his mouth is, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Such a different picture. It's almost as if the tax collector recognizes that he is in desperate need of God. That if he's even allowed to approach the presence of God, he needs God's mercy. The Pharisee who has no real perceived need and the tax collector who knows he is totally and absolutely a mess. Totally and absolutely a mess. I mean, really... On the outside, these are two totally different men, right? I mean, the Pharisee's doing it right. He's kept every law that he's supposed to keep. He has showed up when he's supposed to be places. He prayed, he gave, he did it all. The opposite of him was a tax collector. He had lived up until that point as a thief and sinner, and we get the picture that even after he left, he was still a tax collector. But on the inside, both of them were sinful people, and both of them had the exact same need, they needed Jesus, they needed the mercy of God, they needed the love and grace of God. And sadly, you know what, I really believe that our world and our churches are filled with people that don't recognize or haven't recognized who they really are in their own need. That our churches are filled with people and our world, even those non-believers are filled with a misunderstanding of who they are. And then most of us pack this place thinking that we don't have any real super need. And sadly, so many of us don't know what it means to be saved. To be saved really just means to be rescued from death. And most of us treat treat that like it's some kind of catchphrase. We are sinful, broken people who are in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And I live right in the middle of that right in the middle of it but we are so quick in our church settings to point the finger the people around us based on what they've done And we forget that we are desperately in need of jesus ourselves, and that most of us ran face to face face to face with our own sin before we even walking in the doors this morning and some of us even while we were sitting here You know, a reporter asked a very prominent person um, this week on the news, a, a person that, that professes to be a Christian, they said, why are you a Christian? And this person's response was, you know, I came to faith late in life because the precepts of Jesus Christ spoke to the kind of life I want to lead. So why are you a Christian? Well, Well, I came to Christ later in life because the precepts of Jesus Christ really spoke to the kind of life I want to lead. And I really have found this response fascinating because I truly believe it captures what so many of us feel, which is, I believe in Jesus. I am a Christian because his moral teachings speak to me, because his moral precepts seem right. In the middle of a world that is chaos and amoral, the teachings of Jesus speak to me, and our churches are filled with people like that. But you know what I think is really sad is that that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus does not mean we fall in love with his teachings, his rules, his moral precepts. Falling in love with Jesus means that I fell in love with a God who rescued me from the pit, who saved me while I was dying. In fact, if there's anything I don't like about Jesus is that he calls me to a higher moral standard that I can't live up to. Following Christ means I am rescued and I am saved and I am absolutely unworthy to even be in the presence of God. The fact that he loves me and cares for me and scoops me up and his grace is why I love him and why I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus because he saved me, because I have no life without him. If we lived this way, if we truly embarked in our Christian life as saying, I follow Jesus because I have no choice. He saved me. He changed me. He redeemed my life. It would change the way we see the world, and it would change the way we see other people. Because when we, rest, when we realize that we are a sinner saved by grace, and that that person sitting next to us is in need of the very same grace, the same grace that was new for you this morning. It will change everything. When we understand that we too are needy and in need of the grace of Jesus Christ, it changes the way that we see the world. Now for a lot of us sitting out here, this that's just Christian simple basics. Well, sometimes we have to remember, we have to come face to face with these things and be reminded of them over and over again. That we are sinful people in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. My challenge, really, for us this morning and as we walk out these doors this week is this. How do we see people and see the world? Is our own kind of salvation, our own being saved, our own redemption, does it change the way we see people? I want us to be a church, to be a community who embraces whoever wants to walk through these doors, no matter what they've done or what they're currently doing, by recognizing that they are in desperate need of Jesus the same way that I am. And that just because my life may look a little different than yours does not give me the freedom or the luxury to call you the tax collector. We are all sinful people in need of the same redemption and grace. As we prepare to close our time in worship, we're going to show this little video really more as a way of just saying, God, how do I see the world and how does my own being saved change that? So take a look at this as we prepare our hearts to to close our time in worship. Setting sweetly on the century. And Jesus, showed the man I wanna be. Cause time can heal scars and send the rocket ships to Mars. But it can never show the blind man how to see. And true, my true creation may be tainted by people and the places that I've been. But I've never been is listening, and I guess that that's a good place to begin, oh, um, and I guess that that's a good place to begin.